Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Good morning, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law in Lexington, Virginia. Today's episode is a part of our entrepreneurship series, and I will be highlighting Stephanie Wilkinson of Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, not the one in Washington, D.C. Stephanie is a fellow board member of mine on the Walker Program Board, and she's had several successful businesses over the years, in addition to heavily supporting entrepreneurship. So I'm very excited to introduce Stephanie and to get into all things Red Hen. Now let's get into this discussion. Uh, Stephanie, I'd like to give you a moment to just briefly introduce yourself and your company to give us your elevator pitch. So I'm Stephanie Wilkinson and I started the Red Hen restaurant in Lexington um, in the fall of 2008, just as Lehman Brothers was exploding. Nice time to start a fine dining restaurant. And um, I've had several businesses over the course of my business career. I like to kind of joke that I'm a serial entrepreneur that specializes in industries with, you know, high failure rates and low margins. So <laughs> it's, I had a boutique, uh, I have a boutique retail shop, a yarn shop. I've ha- I started a magazine that I ran for 12 years and then sold. Um, and then I started a restaurant. I also consider my work with our developing our downtown development organization, which we started in um, 2013 from scratch as kind of a business because it really was. It's a nonprofit. All right. So how did you end up in Lexington? Uh, Lexington, Virginia is kind of a random place to be. And you personally don't teach at VMI or Washington and Lee. Right. So how did you get here? My husband and I met in graduate school at University of Virginia, just over the mountain. And then he was offered, when he graduated with his degree in philosophy, he was offered two jobs. And oddly enough, they were cheek by jowl in Lexington. One was a one-year position at Washington and Lee, and one was a three-year position with a chance for tenure at VMI. And he took the, he took the VMI job. And he, we've been here ever since, so 25 years or so. Wow. Wow. Everyone has a VMI or WNL connection in Lexington, it seems. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of hard to get there otherwise. Um, so you mentioned you were in a PhD program. What made you start a business in, instead of just using your PhD? Right. Well, that's interesting because I um, I come from a family that is very kind of entrepreneurial minded. My dad was an innovator and uh, had a small business himself after having been an engineer in a big company. And our family sort of kind of prized doing things um, against or in the face of dumb bureaucratic obligations. Like we didn't really care. We just wanted to get something done, right? Um, The idea of being creative and uh, having the control of my own time really drives me. For a long time in college, I thought, oh, being a professor would be like that, right? Like I could be creative and I could do interesting things and I'd have control of my time. And then I found out academia is one of the worst places for having control for of your, for yourself and it's it's like it doesn't think it's a business but it is a business and it's not a very efficient business 
So I went all the way through a PhD program thinking I was going to teach. And once I got there, I decided this is not the environment for me. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's when I started the magazine with a friend of mine. I had been a journalist before I went back to graduate school. So that's we that was the natural thing to do is to start a magazine, I guess. You know, it's interesting that you're married to an academic <laughs> and then, um, and so many of us are on your boards and you have to tolerate us. Um, and then you, uh, you know, you understand all the ills of academia. So it must be interesting to watch the gross inefficiencies. Well, that except that I feel like once you give people a chance to do something outside the strictures of a whole bunch of bureaucratic layers, they're into it. Like they have good ideas. They're creative. They're energetic. You just got to take out all that other junk and let them do it. So in addition to running the magazine, um, what else did you do before you started Red Hen? before you took the leap of starting a business specifically in Lexington? Right. So when I graduated from college, I went to New York and worked in advertising for a year. And then I spent uh, five years as a tech journalist right at the beginning of the PC era, which was really interesting because it was wide open. There was a lot of money. They were sent all over the country to you know explore this whole new industry. And it was being dumped into environment after environment where I did not really understand what was going on. I did not really understand the technology, but I learned very quickly how to figure out what questions were appropriate to ask and the value of saying, I don't get it. Tell me, explain it to me like I'm five years old or something. And I think that has served me well through the rest of my time because people are willing to share their knowledge with you in general. And as I've started business after business, I have repeatedly gone to people and just said, you know, teach me, tell me something. And people, when they have a skill or a, a set of knowledge, they're, they're pretty happy to share it with you because it makes them feel sort of good. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, why a restaurant? You know, you mentioned fine restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, right. which is kind of the middle of nowhere. Kind of middle <laughs> in, of nowhere. Absolutely. In 2008. Right. Why? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's in the middle of nowhere, and yet it's in the middle of one of the most beautiful places in the country. It's in the middle of this fertile, um, wonderful farmland, dairy, things like that. And here's this beautiful little college town. Tons of alums go off to the world and come back for their reunions, and they were dining on food that all came out of the Cisco truck, right? Like we had no fine dining restaurants. We had no farm to table restaurants. And that's the thing that was really taking off right at the, you know, early 2000s. People were starting to really realize it's important to eat where stuff is grown and serve that kind of food. So a friend and I were, had, who also had been in Charlottesville, which is, as you know, a little more advanced in its culinary outlook, thought, well, we just need to do something here. We need to find a way to leverage all the wonderful produce and meats and things and uh, make it happen here. So in a fit of massive naivete, we just decided, all right, we're going to do it. You know, I had done catering in graduate school, but I'm not a chef. My partner was not a chef, but we thought we have this beautiful little building in the downtown. We will gather all of our friends who might want to do this cooperative venture now, we thought it was going to be like a real co-op thing. And then, of course, the last people standing was my friend John and I, who just decided that we were going to make it happen. So we hired a chef who led the culinary program, and we just essentially took off, except that we were embezzled uh, from in the first three months. We almost lost the business in the first three months. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, that kind of gets into my next question about... Um, 
you know, how did you get the funding and how did you, you know, develop the structure and get the support? Because clearly getting embezzled has something to do with the structure and, and kind of the controls that you were able to have in place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, essentially we put up private money from ourselves. You know, my, uh, my dad passed away right before the restaurant, um, launched and I came into a little bit of money, really would not advise people to do what I did, which was not think about, not really think about, not really have a good grasp of how long it might take to earn back the money that I put into it. Right. Um, I'm wiser now. And had a national event not happened, I don't know if I ever would have made back the money that I put into it, but as things turned out, I have. Um, So we did a partnership. And I think about you teaching our Walker program people and saying it about the dangers of partnerships and the risks of partnerships, because we were 50, 50 partners. And as you know, <laughs> I, can, I can see you go, mm. as you know, that can cause issues. We, we managed through it, but it does create its own challenges. Um, it, so we bootstrapped it. We definitely made it happen. We had two private um, lenders, two high net worth individuals who were willing to give us money, um, patient money at a low interest rate, which we eventually had to rework in the sense that it was supposed to be five years. It took 10 years to pay them off. Wow. Yeah. So you've got some outside, you know, in some, some angel investors is what we call them. You've got your personal money. And then how did you end up getting embezzled? Within the first three. So this is a this is a tragic story. It was not just us. I was sitting at home in the uh, winter of 2009. We've been in business for three months, and a friend of mine called up and said, um, "Is your bookkeeper Allison Mutispaw? I know she does a lot of bookkeeping around town." And I said, "Yes, as a matter of fact, it is." And she said, "Well, she's just been arrested for embezzlement. She had been a bookkeeper uh, for six businesses in town." And lo and behold, we did not know this. This is a small town thing where people trust each other. She had had a previous conviction for embezzlement from a company in Roanoke that she worked for because her husband had been heavily into drugs and had, had, uh, her, had gotten into trouble with his dealer. And his dealer came to Allison and said, if you don't pay off what your husband owes me, I'm going to kill you and the kids. So she started taking money from her employer over years. The employer eventually, you know, found out she went to jail for five years or something. She came back to Lexington where she was from. And a friend of hers, her hearing the story, thought she was just in a bad spot. I'm going to give her another chance. You can, and she said, you can come work for my business. And then, you know, in a small town, people pass around the names of people they use for various professional services. And so this person, without telling any of the other people that she'd had this previous conviction, gave Allison's name. So she was, again, six businesses she was doing the books for. The good thing for us is that she had no check signing privileges. Mm -hmm. She was just the one keeping the accounts and we thought sending off the taxes to the government. Well, She didn't pay any of the employment taxes for the first three months we were in business. We thought we were square. We thought we were doing great. Turns out we were, you know, in hock to the government for $30,000. Wow. And when they came knocking on the door, they were like, 
this, the IRS was pretty reasonable about setting up a payment plan. I think it was the state that came to us and said, what are your cars worth? You know, how much equity do you have in your house? You're going to write us a check tomorrow for this amount of money. It was pretty serious. So we ended up having to reach back into our pockets again and pay that all off and then go forward from there. But it really, another thing it taught me is that we had to recreate all of our books from scratch. And I spent 14 hours on Valentine's Day in 2009 with a woman who is a really good bookkeeper and um, eminently trustworthy. And she helped us recreate the books. And I underst- now I understand how it's supposed to go. But I had very, very sort of casually let someone else do that in the beginning of the business. So, you know, there are two lessons I take from that um, as a business professor. One, don't start a partnership. Because if you start a business as a partnership, then the state or IRS can go seize your house or your cars or everything. But if you started as an LLC or a corporation. Oh, no, no, we were an LLC. I only meant that our business, oh, okay. our, our arrangement together was that we were 50-50 partners. No, we were oh, not. Oh, wow. No, we so were they LLC. still tried to like get your personal property? That's the, they told us that. Uh, employment taxes were the only thing that you could be personally liable for. Oh, wow. That's insane. I really don't know that that's the truth. Well, then, <laughs> they, kinda, then they scared us well enough that we did yeah, it. Yeah, to make you do it. That's right. that's just just so, so crazy. All right, so we've got this, this episode three months in, right? And for a lot of people, I think that would be the break moment where it's like, stop throwing good money after bad and stop. You know, what allowed you to keep going forward and, and keep, you know, investing in the business? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that our um, our reputation as a bright light in a small town that didn't have any um, culinary, you know, kind of uh, ambition served us well. We also both had a strong network of friends that we'd built up over the years and connections in the town. This is where obviously social capital comes into play that really wanted to support us. Um, people kind of came out in droves to, to keep coming to the restaurant and, and paying it forward. And we're just sort of a little bit, as my husband would say, bloody minded. You know, we just kind of were like, we're not going to let this stop us. We're going to keep going. Wow. Wow. It's impressive. I mean, I think all of the entrepreneurs I speak to, um, you know, I don't know of many of them that quit completely, right? If they, if they, if they mothball one business, it's because they're going to start another, but it's, you know, there is no moment where they completely stop. And I think you have to have this fortitude. Yeah. It's a temperament. I think, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, it's just uh, it's a, it's a personality type. Yeah. Do you find that when you talk to people, it's a kind of like, it's how you're built. Yeah. It's a personality type. And I think, but the ones who are successful know to ask questions yeah. and know to talk to people um, and have the ability to listen. Um, I don't meet a lot of successful, you know, the entrepreneurs I meet that are unsuccessful are the ones who can't take advice and learn from it. Everything is always someone else's fault. Um, okay. And I, I kind of now can get a sense of who's going to be successful, who isn't by the temperament. I completely agree with you. Yes. And that's, it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of times we expect business people to be confident in what they do and just kind of um, put on a big face. And I think you can't do anything until you figure out what your customers are really thinking about what you're doing. You've got to find a, a good way to be able to listen to that without getting your back up and just saying, like you said, they're always wrong. It's always somebody else's fault, for sure. Now, what I find interesting about your background is that you've got businesses in different sectors. You've got publishing, you've got a retail store that's a yarn store, 
you've got a restaurant. Um, so what do you do to make up for the lack of knowledge about the individual industries? Um, what have you done to, to make sure that it's successful and, you know, outside of the embezzlement, there isn't, aren't many pitfalls with the restaurant. I eat at Red Hen all the time. It's great. Um, it's one of the only places I eat at in Lexington. But, um, you know, it's it's a great restaurant. People come from all over the state and even the country to eat there. Um, and you don't get that without having good inputs, good staff, great service. You know, how are you able to make sure that you maintain that quality of service and maintain that quality of, of food production when you yourself are not a chef or an expert? Right. You know, I think um, I don't have, there are many things I'm not good at. One thing I am think quite good at is hiring people who are good at what they do and being able to discern when that's going to work. You know, you can hire a person that's technically good, but um, can't get along with other people or uh, have other kinds of faults. But I think I've been successful in making sure that the people at the front line of whatever business it is are good at what they do and responsive to customers and have a vision for why it should be the way it is. And that's, you know, I don't know if I can say more than that about what I've contributed. (laughs) (laughs) Now the yarn store is interesting. Why a yarn store? I'm a huge knitter. Um, It's another one of these kind of weird little passions. I love food. I love magazines and I love yarn and knitting and all that sort of stuff. Plus when that business, that there had been a yarn business there started by a woman who was, uh, um, who, whose husband worked at one of the universities and then she was moving to Massachusetts and that she was just going to shut it down. She was just going to sell off the inventory and shut it down. And those of us who in the knitting community, which is a weird cult, you know, it's a pretty big and pretty passionate cult who love, uh, you know, you can buy yarn online, but people love to go in and touch it and talk to other knitters. And, you know, it's like you're fishing or some other kind of um, hobby where people are really into it. Some friends and I thought, we can't let this shop go. There's no reason that she shouldn't get something for the labor she put into building this uh, business. So we got, I got three other people together and we bought this business. Um, we actually bought the assets of the business to uh, restart it as our own kind of version of what we really wanted as a yarn shop in the same location with the same very patient, kind landlord. Um, and we just made it go. Um, eventually, you know, we had four people owning a business together and that's a lot, that's a lot to, to do, to make it, but it worked in the beginning because we all took turns working there. Eventually we all, um, sold our shares. And now one of the original owners is the sole owner, which is beautiful. She's doing a great job. And that's exactly how it, it should have happened because we took all of us together and all of our resources and time and money to buy it and keep it going, but she's the one that's going to carry it forward. And we all got out of it what we wanted to get out of it. That's awesome. Those are, these are all, but I think these are also kind of classic Lexington stories. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot easier when you are working with two square miles and everyone knows everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of why I think what you have to try to do if you're doing it at another place is every place can be two square miles. You know, you can create a small community. And this is what people are trying to do with developing entrepreneurships in small towns around the country is, you know, create an identity for the for the three blocks that is your central downtown and build those relationships among the businesses and among people, because that's who you're going to have to rely on when things go bad, when COVID hits or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I'd like to talk about the incident that is why many people know Red Hen, which is when you asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave the Red Hen. Um, And I think that your side of the story is not out there. I've obviously heard your side of the story because I know you and I live in Lex. But I, I think that, you know, you got a lot of attention because of how famous she was. But, you know, what led to your decision and why you you stood up for it isn't out there. So I'd love to hear your side yeah. of the story. Well, one reason my side isn't as big as definitely partly what you say, that I'm not a national figure, wasn't a national figure, um, but it's also by design. So this was an incident that was never meant to be a public uh, statement. This was, uh, with my staff feeling uncomfortable, given Sarah Huckabee Sanders' stance on various uh, issues and how damaging we felt that was to the country, it was meant to just be their private uh, wall against hate and bigotry. It didn't turn out that way because one of my servers um, posted a little image of the, the little note he'd left about 86ing her, dumping her in uh, restaurant parlance and put it on his Facebook page, which then got picked up and overnight it blew up. The interesting thing about what happened then is that I actually had a friend from high school, I mean, from college, who is a professional crisis counselor for major corporations. When baby aspirin goes bad or something like that, he swoops in and and helps companies uh, recover their reputation and deal with stuff. So the next day I called him and said, this is all blowing up. I need your advice about what to do. And he said, Steph, If this was 25 years ago or 20 years ago, and we had three network news outlets, I would be coaching you on how to get out there and talk about this. He said, the truth is today, you're not in control of your narrative. You know, you can't, everybody's going to say what they want to say. So you have some choices. He said, my advice to you is to pick one outlet that you trust, give your story, your side of the story to them, and then shut up. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So I spoke to the Washington Post. And I got to tell my side of the story about what happened and why we did what we did. And then I weathered the barrage of reporters at the door, banging on the door at 10 o'clock at night, the emails, the phone calls, everything like that. And I and my staff, to their credit, everybody just stayed silent, which meant that the only definitive uh, account they had was my statement in the post. They always had to refer back to that, which was my, were my words, right? So that was a very, very valuable lesson, a very valuable thing to do. And it, you, I don't know if you can kind of imagine how much uh, discipline and it took not to say something because we all want to defend ourselves all the time and say, that's not the right thing, this, this thing. But then you're just going to get into a shouting match with people. So um, we did it because we felt really strongly that the world was going to hell in a handbasket and that this was one of the uh, maidens of that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not about her being a Republican. We have served Republicans in the past and we serve them now. We'll serve them in the future. Some of my friends are Republicans. It's much more about the fact that she had this kind of platform that we felt was doing damage and kind of intimate damage, given what she was saying about um, gay marriage, gay people in the military. Huge percentage of my, my staff is gay. And so that just hit home. There was also the issue of the children at the border, which as a mother, you know, freaks me out. The idea that you could have your child ripped away from you and that it's a good policy. So I have no regrets. 
it's a very, um, it, this has a long tail. I still get emails every day that are from people. And as Sarah Huckabee Sanders continues her political journey, it's going to keep coming up. We have had to put in a lot of safety and security measures. Um, but the support that came out afterwards was also tremendous. It was kind of amazing, locally and nationally. Now, I'd love to take, hear, hear some of that, because you mentioned that, like, this incident actually helped you to start making a profit, um, finally. Yes. And so I imagine when it initially happened, and I actually think I first moved to Lexington. No, I did first move to Lexington, like, a few weeks after this happened. Wow. And what I remember was the protesters outside of Red Hen, um, you know, people were canceling weddings in Lexington and, and like refusing to support the city of Lexington on the premise that it was this liberal bastion, which is crazy. <laughs> given, you know, given what we all know about Lexington um, and I all but I, and, and the restaurant was closed for obvious reasons. Right. Like there was no way that you could open right. in that month or so after. Um, but but people did start to support immediately. So I'd lo- love to hear about, you know, what was it like initially? And then, you know, what did the community do? in the world do to support you? Right. So um, I think about sitting here in this living room that I'm in right now with my kids who were, were understandably sort of freaked out by what was going on and, you know, family getting death threats. And uh, um, and every day the, the, the postal worker would walk up to the house with one of those white bins full of mail. So it, this is my sofa. And I'm not kidding. We had a pile of mail by the end of the first week that covered the sofa. I have 4,000 pieces of mail that came in. So it's really interesting to me. I'll just pause and say the interesting thing about that to me is that people were so fired up in this day and age. They weren't just, you know, I got doxxed instantly. So my phone was blowing up and my emails were a mess. But people were going, finding pieces of paper, finding cards, finding whatever, and mailing me stuff like through the postal service. I just find that fascinating that they would take the time and effort to do that. And so my kids and I would sit around every day, open up the mail, and we'd sort it into piles like love and hate. And there were a few people who just wanted to kind of, you know, be a little neutral, both sides-ish, but mostly was love and hate. And some of the hate was really gross. I mean, people mailed us feces and glitter bombs and, you know, all sorts of obscene things. Um, But the love was really uh, astonishing and heartfelt. People who were immigrants to this country saying, at last people are standing up against something that is makes us feel like we don't belong in this country and the hate that is here. And here's a $5 bill. Or how can I support you? One thing I had forgotten, not forgotten, I just didn't, we had an online system for buying gift certificates. It did not strike me that, of course, people who wanted to support us were going to go on, on and order all these gift certificates. So in the first, I think in the first maybe three or four days, something like $40,000 worth of gift certificates were purchased. Now, that sounds great. Unfortunately, the system had been set up that if we hadn't, if we didn't acknowledge the sale in 24 hours, it was refunded. And I didn't realize it because I was in such a state at the time. So, you know, the first (laughs) $40,000 essentially went right back to the people. Um, But they were buying them largely never to use them, but just to be as a contribution to the business. Wow. I, I definitely had friends who bought gift certificates and, you know, I, you know, I had friends who drove down to eat there once you're back open and, yeah. you know, people definitely put in support. Cause I think we all forget, I mean, things are so contentious now, but I, I think we forget how bad things were in 2017. I agree a hundred percent. And you know, the, 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 
the breadth of what it meant to people is astonishing. I told you, my husband teaches philosophy at VMI. He, um, but we don't have the same last name. So it, it takes a little effort to find out, I think, online that he was related to me in this incident. But he came home one day and said, I got an email from somebody that seems a little, wants to be on my, no, I got a Facebook friend request from somebody and I'm a little suspicious. But he went ahead and clicked on it. And it was a woman um, whose daughter was considering coming to VMI. And this is a black woman from Baltimore. And she said, I didn't want my daughter down there because I thought this is not a safe space for her. He said, but now that I know that there's a place like the Red Hen who will stand up for people, I feel more confident sending my kid there. And I was like, good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think Lexington is one of those places in the world where the population that lives there is probably a lot more 50, 50, 60, 40, right. Of the people who actually live in town um, and capable of coexisting with each other. Yes. It's the people who come visit us from outside (laughs) that are a problem. Yeah. Um, It's not the people who are physically in Lexington. Yeah. And that was the real um, trauma for the local people is that they have prided themselves on, on everybody living cheek by jowl enough that they know that they don't necessarily agree on different issues, but have always in a very Southern nice way gotten along. Right. And so this was a, many people expressed their, um, sadness and disappointment that I had violated that sense of just tolerance and hospitality. And I, you know, I understand that. I don't share it, but I understand. Well, and I think that, you know, with so many of your workers being LGBTQ and being immigrants, um, and and the, the kind of vitriol that was coming from that side at the time, you know, is does going to work and being polite require them to endure that. Thank you for saying that. I really, this is a, I subscribe to the Danny Meyer model of restaurateurs. He, you know, Danny Meyer, he started a bunch of famous restaurants in, uh, and he'd written the book on hospitality, literally. And his um, approach, he's always said, your first order of obligation as a restaurateur is not to the customer. They're not always right. It is to your restaurant family. It is to your servers and your workers and, and your dishwashers and your cooks. And I completely believe that I I subscribe. And I do not think that service means you have to be servile. Mm -hmm. I think we, we know that the tipping, the tipping structure is a legacy of uh, post-slavery times. It's a terrible, terrible system. It's been very hard. It's very hard to root it out. But the fact that we have the way servers are required to behave in this country is vastly different than in a lot of countries where it is considered a very sort of, you know, noble, it's not just like a throw off job that you do or that you have to kind of grovel to people to make them like you, to give you money. It's a respected thing. And uh, it just didn't grow up that way around here. So we're, we live with a lot of legacy of pretty unfortunate approaches to what it means to be served in a restaurant. I will say, um, as a frequent diner of Red Hen, what I find amazing and what makes the experience so much better um, is how knowledgeable the servers are and how seriously they take their job, right? You know, everything about a Red Hen meal is going to be perfect. It's going to feel like you're in a five-star restaurant in a real city. It's not going to feel like... You but pulled I hope, off without, I hope without any of the snootiness, you know, I feel like we try really hard not to make people feel like, oh, if you don't know how to pronounce that word, you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. 
No, not none of the snootiest at all. Just the good food and um, <laughs> the good wine and great service, right? Like, you know, you come to know who all the servers are because of that. And they know you. I mean, that's one thing I'm really proud of is that they spend time trying to uh, remember people's likes and dislikes. We, we cater to all sorts of food um, aversions and requirements, but also just try to remember what people like. Oh, you know, Carlos loved that Pinot. We're going to remember that and bring it to her next time. Yes. And they will make things spicy. Um, <laughs> we know you. <laughs> yes. Well, also, you know, your chef always says he likes spicy food. He just happens to work in Lexington, Virginia. <laughs> So I get the real recipe when I go eat there and, you know, other people get the watered down Lexington version of the recipe, Um, but it's, it's one of the few places. There are some other people in town who like see me coming and will like up the spice level for me and I appreciate it. So, yeah, you know, I think this is a good segue to talk about your active support of businesses, other businesses of entrepreneurship. And um, I'd like to talk, let's talk about our Walker program, or actually let's go in chronological order. Let's talk about the program you you worked on before Walker. Right. Um, right. And then we'll get into what Walker is and why you made that one different from what you did before. Yeah. Um, so I was working, as I said, as the head of our downtown development organization. And as you probably know, if small towns around the country are never going to survive unless they have some draw, because you can buy anything online now, you have to have a reason for people to want to go to your little downtown. And yeah, maybe it's okay if it has a Starbucks and a, you know, J. Crew and a whatever, but they could be in the mall, right? Mm-hmm. What makes it cool are the independent businesses that give it character. And that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen, um, and it's hard to foster because it's expensive to start businesses. Like I keep saying, it's a privileged activity these days. You have to be, you have to have money and connections, and it's just kind of a terrible situation we're in now, where it's an elite activity to start a small business. And yet, it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. It does not have to be for the amount of money some people spend on boats. You can start a small business, but you have to have that money or access to that money. You are also much better off if you are trained a little bit in what a business needs so that you don't do what I did with, you know, hiring somebody and then never paying attention to whether your bookkeeper is actually paying the taxes, et cetera. Um, So when the state of Virginia decided it was going to help small towns uh, create an entrepreneurial ecosystem in the jargon of the day, we applied for a grant and got a $60,000 grant to do training and a little bit of funding for small businesses. So we put people through an eight-week training program. Then we had a pitch competition and eight businesses got up in front of 400 people in downtown Lexington and and pitched their business ideas. And a panel of judges picked four of them to get money. And in the end, eight started. So this group was interesting because not those folks did not necessarily need the money, um, but the training definitely helped. And uh, until about Two months ago, all eight of them were still in business. All eight of them survived through the pandemic. That's four years plus years afterwards, which is a great rate, particularly for small businesses. And the reason the one didn't survive is was not because it wasn't doing well. It was a uh, supply chain issue. It's a bike, a bike company that couldn't get its, all of its stuff is made in China and it just wasn't happening. Wow. I didn't realize the bike store closed, yeah. which is how small Lexington is. I'm like, wait, the bike store closed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, but another one will come along. I'm certain. Yeah. 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 So, I think what's also interesting about Lexington and why um, 
our businesses, when we start businesses in Lex, I think one thing that makes them thrive, um, you know, we don't have chains downtown really. There's like a subway and a Domino's, but we, you know, it's free of chains, which there are moments when I'm like, I just want my consistent Starbucks latte. We're getting and a Starbucks, Carlos. We're getting a Starbucks. It's going to be out. It's going to be out near Tractor Supply in the old uh, um, Cornerstone Bank building. Oh, okay. I mean, but now I'm used to going to Pronto and Lex Coffee and fighting with people about which one is better. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and we have a cheesemonger and a chocolate shop and just really kind of random small thing, random things in Lexington that you would not expect in small town Virginia. Right. Um, and, I, you know, it's that people support it, um, you know, and and it's good, you know, like I go to the cheesemonger when I am hosting something. She's really good. Yeah, She's really good. Yes. I think world-class honestly. And yeah. And you know, these things kind of build on each other. So one other thing that made a big difference downtown was having the George's hotel, these, the Gottwalds who are from Richmond and, and are, are big um, industrialists. They have a lot of money they have strong ties to VMI and they decided to buy two buildings and turn them into this world-class boutique hotel, which is, was listed on, uh, I think travel and leisures was like in the top five in the United States, which is astonishing. Right. So that kind of stuff, you know, you get something good, you get a couple of good things, you get three really good things, and it becomes a place. You've made a place that's going to make it easier for the next folks to come along. But also I, will, I stayed at the Georges when I lived in Lexington. That's how much I lived at it. Wow. <laughs> no, the heated, floor, the heated bathroom floors get me every time. I'm yeah. just like, I would like to step out of the shower onto a heated floor. Yes. Absolutely. So I have to book a room at the Georges because nowhere else to do this. Also, I want to, I want Bill to bring me a drink to my room. Yes. Fantastic. Which, which he will do. do. Which he will do, which I don't know of any other hotel in the country where you can call down <laughs> to the bar and the bartender will bring you a drink to your room. But that happens in Lexington. Now let's talk about Walker program because yeah. we set up Walker program differently. And I say we, cause I kind of got in early, but Absolutely. Um, we, we set up the Walker program differently. So I'd love for you to explain you know, what was different about the Main Street Project and Walker program and why we did it differently and what with those success rates? Yeah, yeah. Um, when we did launch Lex for the downtown group, we ended up with 30 uh, people signing up saying they wanted to start a small business and one person was black. So it was very skewed to people who already were well represented in our downtown. When after the murder of George Floyd, we decided that one thing that we really need to do to address the inequities in our own community was to realize that we had, uh, that the community had somehow successfully shed itself of a vibrant black owned business community. And that that was not uh, the way we really wanted to go. We thought, well, what tools do we have? We, what do we know how to do? We know how to, we know how to help people start businesses. We're just going to need some willing people, willing hands, coalition of organizations that help support businesses smart people on a board, and some money. So we put out the call and given the time, uh, the times and people's passion to kind of be seen to be doing good, um, we thought we were going to raise $60,000. And in three months, we had $165,000. So now we had the money. We didn't know if we were going to get people to, to take the leap. Um, and fortunately, some brave souls in the middle of COVID said they would join the program and try it out. What did they have to lose? Um, and we kind of were off to the races there. You'll probably recall that we started off thinking the groups, the board started off thinking we were going to do the same sort of pitch competition style assessment of grants. 
And then we kind of looked at each other and said, does it really make sense to hit people against each other in different industries for when we have enough money to, we think, viably support a good number of businesses? They don't, why are we making them compete against each other? So that was a major shift was to go from a pitch competition to a bar above which we feel a business is ready to be funded. The other part that's, I think, important and ongoing is the support that happens afterwards. Because, you know, you hand somebody the ability to buy their equipment and fund their startup, but that's not, that's not the whole deal of getting the business off the ground. You have to be there when the embezzlement happens, when the landlord chases a lease, when suddenly you're realizing maybe you didn't pick the right um, group of, of, of customers or something. And that's why we have this whole ongoing um, educational and support organization around it. I think it's working pretty well. I think so. Um, you know, I think what, you know, what's interesting about our program to me is, you know, we're giving out grants and not loans and there isn't a competition. Right. Um, we keep expanding what the support looks like. <laughs> and so, you know, they have a year to spend their money, but, you know, they also get legal help and they get accounting help and, you know, just mentorship in town. Um, and we haven't had any of our businesses close yet in two right. years that have, that have launched. Um, and, and we're not giving out a ton of money. I mean, oh. we're giving out a lot of money, um, on the individual level and those people's lives. But in the scheme of entrepreneurship, you know, we're talking 10,000, 20,000, $5,000. When, you know, when you go to pitch competitions, people are talking about 5 million and 3 million. And, you know, you know, we're able to do this on what $200,000 max is what we've, I don't think we've given out a full 200,000 yet. Oh no, Um, no. So, you know, and I think that's, what's, what's interesting about, you know, the approach that it doesn't, and it proves the point that it doesn't take much um, to, to bridge the gap because we've got an income gap, we've got an access to credit gap and the other problems that keep um, black people from starting businesses. It's only taking a small amount of money to do so, um, but it's taking the support and the small amount of money. And, you know, I'm against financial literacy in general. Um, I think poor people know best how to manage their money. I'm horrible at managing my money. But I guarantee you, like a single mom who makes half as much money as me is great at managing money. Um, and so the idea that those people don't know how to manage money is right. a little condescending and insulting. Absolutely. Instead, we talk about business structure. <laughs> and right. and having the, I mean, you shouldn't underplay what you've brought to this with um, V&E and the, the, the ability to have lawyers on call is not just for what it does, which is tremendous, the ability to get a business structured the proper way from the beginning so that you don't run into a huge headache nightmare down the road, but also the ability to have people who have never felt as though the structures of power, let's say a lawyer, that seems like something you only need when you're in trouble rather than somebody that's somebody on your side, right? Like to hear the entrepreneurs say, oh yeah, I just talked to my lawyer, you know, is the, the confidence and, um, uh, underpinning that that gives them is super valuable, super. And that's the same thing with the other kind of network that I think that we're trying to build is like, yeah, you've got every right to call up the planning guy and ask why the zoning is like this. And can I get a you know waiver for various things? Like take your place. This is it. You should be able to do this. Absolutely. And I, it's almost like reclaiming of citizenship is what we've, we've empowered yeah. these people to do. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, like I have my students working on, 
a full survey of zoning in the in Rockbridge and surrounding counties. And like, do we need an initiative? Do we need to, t- like, who do we need to talk to um, to fix these zoning issues? Or, you know, are some of the zoning issues good? You know, part of the reason we don't have chains in downtown Lexington is the zoning. Right. Which is why the Starbucks is out by the tractor supply. But, you know, is is that also discriminatory in some right. way? Um, and and yeah. we need to have that conversation. And we're having conversations with even things like, you know, our downtown is very, um, picturesque. And one way it's kept picturesque is because we have an architectural review board, which uh, you have to, if you want to paint the front door of your business a different color, you have to go to them. If you want to put a window box up, if you want to have a sign up, you have to go in front of them and justify the look of what you have. Now you can see where I'm going with this because we're getting questions about like, we put up the Walker program sign and we got a little like, we don't know about the colors on this sign. And I was like, really, is that really your, your, place to talk about the colors of our business like um we may be seeing a lot of really interesting vibrant new kinds of businesses and we have to think carefully about what kind of gatekeeping we're doing yeah and i I, you know i think the new stuff adds character too like i think about the pilates studio which i've never been to but it draws my eye because right. it doesn't, it's not cobblestone and like brown. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, electric it, pink, right? it's electric pink, which is awesome to see right. electric pink in downtown Lexington, yes. uh, which, you know, I think some of it too is, you know, historically Lexington was a very male place. And so I think True. we could use a little charm at times. We could yeah. use a little softness yeah. in the way that that place looks. Yeah. The next thing I'd really like to see, I mean, finding out for, through WNL's um, undergraduate courses that have been investigating the um, history of Black businesses in, in Rockbridge and particularly in downtown Lexington, there used to be a lot more um, property that was owned that was in Black hands. And that has dissipated. I think that it's really hard as a small business person to really claim um, a generational wealth generating business without owning the property. Mm -hmm. So I would love to see some way, even if it can be maybe collaborative um, in the way that the Knights of Pythias used to own a building that incubated businesses and then sent them forward, that we could find some way to, to figure out how to do that. That would be really cool. Well, and I think that's the next step in development as well is to figure out how to own your building. Do you own your Red Hen building or not? We do not. And it's, you know, it is a source of heartache because we put so much money into the renovation of it. We own everything that's in there, but if we needed to take it all out again, where would we put it? We built a loft with an old mill beams, things like that. It's just, it was custom built in somebody else's building. Yeah. Well, maybe your landlord will sell. Maybe that's what we need to start yeah. pushing some landlords yeah. to sell. But when you do um, well enough, they want to charge you too much money for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that is the next frontier in Lexington because it feels like five people own things <laughs> and yes, yep. we're always going to the same five people to open, to, to, to rent space. And or the school owns it or the school's starting to own a lot of stuff downtown. Mm-hmm. No does, comment on that. Right. It creates a lot <laughs> I, of problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially since we don't pay taxes. Correct. So. They, yeah. Yes. That's a problem. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a problem. I don't know why we're doing that, to be honest. Um, I'm not in charge, as you know. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I always would be say. a much better place if you were, Carlos. Well, no, I cannot be in charge of that. No, no. no. I would lose my mind <laughs> if I had to be in right. charge of that place. It's yeah. not worth it. 
No, no, I would, I would definitely be schizophrenic. So, all right. What keeps you moving forward? What's your why? What, what makes you continue to invest in these businesses and to, to sustain Red Hen and, yeah. and just keep going in Lexington, I, in the middle of nowhere, Virginia? It's exactly the same sort of thing that I was saying at the beginning. It's, it's, it's this ability to um, make my time my own, work on creative projects. And I really do get a big um, jolt of, whatever the good hormone is when I see somebody, when I feel like I'm able to help somebody else do the same thing for themselves. So that is a huge reward to me. I'm infinitely grateful to my spouse who has the health insurance that has let me do this this whole time. And the been very patient and only ever said to me when I started my first business, just don't lose the house stuff. Just don't <laughs> lose the house. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's what keeps me getting up and working with people who have the same, you know, you see yourself in them, you see them thinking, Oh, I have this idea and I could, I could do this and I could sell that. And it would be really cool if we had, and I'm like, yes, let's do that. Uh, that makes me incredibly happy every day. Will I do it forever? Probably not because it's also exhausting, but it's, it's pretty good for now. All right. So now we get, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I have one more little soapbox that I feel is a little countercultural, which is that I don't think everything has to grow and get bigger. I'm a big fan of the small business that makes people happy. Um, so I went through this whole entrepreneurship training course at Babson, which is a very good program, and I loved it, but it was about how you grow your business. And for a while, we explored growing Red Hen, another outlet, having products. We started um, take-home meal kits that are like Blue Apron and stuff, and we enjoyed it. But we also realized we don't need to do it, and it adds as much headache as it does um, potential for greater wealth. So when when people are always saying, oh, well, how are you going to get bigger and bigger and bigger? I kind of rebel against that a little bit. At the same time, I realize I'm in this weirdly privileged position where I don't need to think about whatever I make myself personally being the uh, sole source of, of my children's sustenance in the future. So I have to balance that out a little bit. Yeah, but I, I think we have a tendency as Americans to think every business should be the next Facebook. Right, right. And it like, there are plenty of very successful businesses. When I think back to when I was practicing, what I found most fascinating, like, yes, we represented a ton of big corporations, but the number of like family owned businesses that were bringing in like 10 or $20 million a year that I had never heard of. Right. right. And that are employing people and everyone's happy and they've got, and they have no desire to get any bigger. Right. You know, we're reviewing contracts or, you know, handling some lawsuits when someone falls in the business. We're not trying to merge them. They just want to be content and keep going. And I think, you know, that's why I always say, what's your why? When I talk to entrepreneurs, Um, because, you know, if an entrepreneur's why is to be the next Jeff Bezos um, and to make as much money as possible versus to have lifestyle, they really run their businesses in a different way. And I don't what I like, though, about doing these episodes is I don't talk to many entrepreneurs who are like, and I'm going to expand and I'm going to do this just for the sake of expansion. Mm. Um, And so I think we do have a small business culture in America, but the programs that train entrepreneurs don't acknowledge that culture. Very well said. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate. I think we should talk to more people about what does it take to start the business that enables you to live a comfortable life Instead of starting the business that forces you to work yourself to death, just like you would if you were working at a job. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. And there's, we don't have very good, um, clear thinking around helping people understand, which I see in the population that we're working with the Walker program, their obligation to, um, their community versus to their own selves and their own family. Right. So I continually have a little bit of concern that they're so, um, interested in providing for their community that they're underpricing all their products and they're, you know, they're not going to be able to get lift off because they are, this is, sounds terrible. So altruistic in a way. And there's got to be a happy medium between those two. Yeah. It's still profit seeking activity. <laughs> That's what I say to the, like, you've got to, you've got to make a profit to keep going. You're not right. running a 501c3. But right. what I will say is interesting, Stephanie is you know, we've had that conversation with some of the businesses. So we've started looking into B Corps and some of them maybe starting co-ops and nonprofits, right? right? So I don't want to say, you know, you can't be totally altruistic. It just means you have to raise funds in a different way. Right. Um, and so we've been talking about like one, the one that wants to be a farm is also talking about, yeah. you know, possibly having a food pantry and being a co-op and being a, a true B Corp with a 501c3 component when it grows instead of growing to just take. Um, and we need that. We need those people to start businesses. Absolutely. I love that. And I, yes, I think nonprofits are, it's okay to make a living out of a nonprofit. Right. And it's okay to have a B Corp that, you know, you know, we're going to price things lower or we're going to price things higher so we can donate and, and to have that, to still have a mission that isn't just like profit, 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 grow, right. grow, grow. Right. But like, how can I help the world with my business? Yeah. Doesn't that make, doesn't that seem exciting to you? I love even hearing that we have people. Yeah. No, it's awesome. All right. So before we close out, um, what can we do to support you and all of your various businesses and ventures? What can the audience do? This is shameless plug portion of the episode. Absolutely. Well, you know, come down at the Red Hen because it's really good. You won't regret it. Um, but also, I really think if you are at all interested in supporting Black-owned businesses and the revitalization and reparations that are involved in that, support the Walker program, donate to the Walker program, support the businesses that we are getting started. Um, many of them will be able to have things online that you can purchase. Um, we're just kind of getting that portion of our website up and going that lets people see what businesses we have and how they can contribute. But I would say watch this space because it's really, really cool. All right. And so the last comment that I will ask of you is if you could go back in time and give advice to yourself when you started your business, what would you say to yourself? Oh, man, um, make sure that you never, I, I kind of said this as if I was always this way. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Find the person who's just doing the thing you want to do and pick their brains, buy them a cup of coffee, do whatever it is that will make them happy because it will make you happy too. And just don't be shy. There's no reason to be shy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. This was awesome. We could obviously go on all day. We talked to, uh, <laughs> yeah. I probably talked to Stephanie as much as I talk to some family members sometimes. <laughs> like, have I talked to Stephanie today? What's happening? <laughs> well, we, we have get a, good out of it, right? Yeah, we get good out of it. We've got a lot going on in our little community in Lexington. So yeah. uh, thank you for appeal, appearing. And again, everyone, Red Hen Lex, not DC. Red Hen Lex. Uh, yes, Red Hen <laughs> Um, and you can, can you still buy like the seasonings and stuff? You can on buy the seasonings, you can buy hats and t-shirts and yeah, aprons, cool things like that. Yeah. So they do have a little online shop and you can still buy gift certificates. Absolutely. So you can do that. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are streamed on the Voice America Network or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page or reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you for listening. And thank you again, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.